that a government powerful enough to give you what you want is also a government powerful enough to uh, to take things away from you and to give you things you don't want. Even if you like the people that are in charge of the government today, they're not going to be the same people who are in charge of the government uh, a couple of years from now. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Essential Scholars podcast. I'm your host, Rosemary Fike, and today we're going to have part two of our conversation about Milton Friedman. Joining me once again is Dr. Stephen E. Landsberg, the author of the Essential Milton Friedman book. Dr. Landsberg is a professor of economics at the University of Rochester and the author of many books, such as Can You Outsmart an Economist? The Big Questions and the Armchair Economist. Thank you so much for coming back to talk about Milton Friedman. And hopefully in this part of the conversation, we can get into some of his work that he made available to a non-economist audience. Because um, that, to me, one of the things that really sets him apart from a lot of thinkers of his caliber is that he took the time to communicate these ideas to, to a broader audience. Yeah, as I said in the uh, first uh, session that we did, uh, the best way to see that is to go to YouTube and look at the many, many videos of uh, Milton Friedman interacting with all sorts of different audiences, uh, uh, arguing with other economists, uh, arguing sometimes uh, with some pretty vociferous college students. Uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, Bob Chittister, the television producer, uh, made a uh, series of television broadcasts called Free to Choose with Friedman. And uh, they were going to include a lot of footage of Friedman speaking to audiences on college campuses. They ended up deciding not to use that footage, but they did film it all. And it's all there on YouTube. So you can see lots of uh, uh, college visits with Friedman. And, and um, there's nothing I can say that, that that will substitute for actually watching those videos. If I recall correctly, I came across a clip once that had a very young Michael Moore asking a question. Oh, I haven't seen that. I think you, you might have to look at it. If I, I, I might be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure there's one of those clips where it was Michael Moore, um, you know, the documentary maker. So um, that's an interesting little clip. Um, my one friend, she calls Milton Friedman my gateway drug because Milton Friedman was one of the first economists that really got me interested in, in markets. I was very, very skeptical of markets, um, but I had seen Free to Choose as an undergrad and started thinking about things a little bit differently. Um, so I would love to hear um, from your perspective, you know, what to Friedman, why were markets so important? What can they do for us? Uh, there are so many levels to, at which to answer that question, but I, a very big one, and this is an idea that um, uh, I think we should associate also uh, with, with Friedrich Hayek, who was very uh, eloquent on this point, is that without markets, you don't have prices, and without prices, you don't have information about the cost of producing things, and you don't have information about what people want. You know, we often uh, hear people say that the reason we need markets is to incentivize people to produce things that other people want. 
And that's a big part of it, right? I, I um, uh, uh, People go to work in factories and it's not their first choice of a way to spend the day, but um, they're producing something that other people really want and we want to reward them for that. And we want to incentivize them for it. But what I like to point out to my students is that the problem goes much deeper than that. Because even if we woke up one day and found that we had all been transformed into a new kind of being where all we wanted to do was work for other people, help other people. If we had, if all of our greed vanished and we all were newborn altruists. And so I would say, I don't want to go to work in that factory, but I'm going to do it because I want to help other people. I would fail. And the reason I would fail is I don't know what other people particularly want. I don't know which factory to go to. I don't know whether to produce blue cars or red cars. Prices tell me that. Prices tell me what it is that people want more of right now. And unless I have those prices to react to, I do not know how to serve my fellow human beings. The fact is that without greed, Again, greed's got its downsides, but I always emphasize to my students that if we weren't greedy, if we were out to help each other, we would do less good for each other than we do now, a lot less good because we would not know the best way. The world is full of 7 billion strangers, okay? And, and we don't know what those strangers want. Uh, and the only way we have of finding out is through prices. Do you mind if I go on a little more in this video? Please video? do. I come into class sometimes. Well, I don't actually do this, but but I could do this. I could come into class and I could tell my students, there's an exam next week and you are required uh, to write that exam with a pencil. Uh, now, the demand for pencils is an example that uh, Milton Friedman loved to use. Uh, my students go to the bookstore to buy more pencils because they don't have enough to, to, to write this exam. The bookstore runs a little low on pencils. They go to their supplier and says, we need, say we need more pencils. And the supplier provides a few more pencils. And they go to their supplier and say, we need a few more pencils. And at some point, somebody realizes they're not able to meet the demand for pencils and they raise the price a little bit. And then because they've raised the price a little bit, that bids up ever so slightly the price of all the components that go into the pencil, the wood, the lead, the, the graphite, the, the rubber. And somewhere in Sri Lanka, a guy growing rubber trees notices that the demand for rubber has gone up. The price of rubber has gone up a little bit. He doesn't know the demand's gone up. All he knows is the price has gone up a little bit and says, I think I'll harvest one more rubber tree and that's where the extra rubber comes from to make the erasers on those pencils that my students need to write their exams. Now, how in the world would you have gotten the information to this guy in Sri Lanka? Because my students don't know they need a guy in Sri Lanka to, to grow another rubber tree. They just know that they want a pencil and they don't know what goes into making it. Even if they had a direct line of communication, they, they wouldn't know who to contact. The guy in Sri Lanka, if all he wants to do is be useful to the world, he doesn't know if he should be growing another rubber tree or, or growing another of some other kind of plant. The price tells him to grow that one more rubber tree. Moreover, 
This is only 100 students. Prices go up a tiny, tiny, tiny amount. So, so little that almost nobody will notice. That's good because we don't want a million more rubber trees harvested. We want one. We want one. And which farmer in Sri Lanka do we want harvesting one more rubber tree? The one who can do it cheapest because that's the one who's using the fewest resources. We want things produced cheaply because cheaply means using the fewest resources and it means leaving more resources for future generations or for ourselves in the future, the price accomplishes that. Nobody is going to respond to a teeny, tiny, tiny price change except somebody who believes that he can really, really efficiently harvest another rubber tree. Uh, that's the one we want responding. So the price system works miracles, and I think it is not uh, uh, an overstatement to call it a miracle. If you had never seen it, uh, you would not have believed it was possible. That Everybody in the world is able to influence everybody else in the world through the price system. Your demands, the things that you want, the things that you uh, are able to produce, the costs that you're facing, all of that comes out in prices and affects the decisions that are made by everybody else in the world. Your needs, your abilities affect the choices of everyone else in the world through the price system. There's no other way to coordinate that. There's no other way to organize it. One of the things that you mention in your discussion of, of Friedman's capitalism and free, freedom is that market-based societies are more hostile to discrimination. And that's something that might catch people off guard if you're not you know, familiar with how markets work. Can you talk a little bit about that argument that, that markets help um, us eliminate or, or punish people who might be engaging in discrimination. Look, if, if I want to buy a cake from a baker who doesn't like my looks and doesn't want to sell it to me, I can go to another baker. Uh, if bakeries were organized by the government and if the person running the department of, of, of baking uh, didn't like the way I look, uh, I might have a real problem. It is the more concentration. That, and I don't think people have any problem understanding that discrimination can be more of a problem when we have monopolies than we have a than when we have a bunch of competing firms. If there's only one, uh, if you only have one internet provider, and you don't like the service they're providing for whatever reason, maybe they're discriminating against you or anything else. It, you're you're kind of stuck. If you've got eight competing internet providers, um, then. Um, uh, then you've got more options. And if one of them is discriminatory and you don't like that, you can deal with another one. Somehow people have no problem understanding that. And yet they forget that the alternative to markets is a government monopoly, um, uh, is, is, is a government with the power to make decisions and to discriminate. And um, uh, uh, that puts us in a very dangerous situation. Which is very um, interesting because when people are often trying to um, directly overcome the out, un, unequal outcomes or the the outcome of a discriminatory process, they they turn to the government, right? So um, you know, people who care about you know, you know women having you know, equal pay, they don't think that that's going to be necessarily accomplished through the market process. They want to legislate that outcome. Um, so it's really interesting to, to have, you know, the, 
argument be made that that's not necessary? Not not only necessary, but but dangerous in the sense that a government powerful enough to give you what you want is also a government powerful enough to uh, to take things away from you and to give you things you don't want. Um, the fact that, the, the, that you're giving the government additional power in hopes that they will use it in ways you want them to use it is is a very risky thing. Even if you like the people that are in charge of the government today, they're not going to be the same people who are in charge of the government uh, a couple of years from now. If you were a great fan of Barack Obama and wanted him to have a lot more power as president, whatever power you gave him, Donald Trump shared that power. If you were a great fan of Donald Trump and you wanted him to have more power, whatever power you gave him, Joe Biden is sharing that power right now. Uh, governments turn over all the time. And um, again, the thing about competitive markets is that nobody has the kind of power that a government has uh, because customers and suppliers and employees and partners are all able to walk away. They have options. And um, really, your, your, your best strategy for getting people to do things that you want them to do is to have options and, and, and to choose who you want to deal with. Another really interesting thing that Friedman does in Capitalism and Freedom is, is he makes a connection between economic freedom, like market-based you know, economic interactions, property rights, um, voluntary contract. Um, he makes a connection between that type of freedom and other types of freedoms like civil liberties or political freedom. Um, and I think he goes as far to say is that you, you can't have the political freedom and the civil liberties without the economic freedom. Why is economic freedom such an essential ingredient to the well, other? You know, he gives a very striking example in the 1930s, all through the 1930s, when Winston Churchill was pretty much the one person in England saying, we got to do something about Hitler. Um, he was not able to get time to make that case on television because the television networks in Britain were owned by the government and they didn't want to give time to a guy who had a point of view that they did not agree with. Um, so uh, uh, if Winston Churchill had lived today or if he had lived even in the United States at the same time when there were multiple networks, uh, or if he lived today, for goodness sake, when there's YouTube and blogs and everything, uh, that's a market. Okay, though that there you see markets for, uh, forming. Um, anybody can start a printing press. Anybody can start a video service. Uh, that means that all voices are going to be heard. Now you might think that there are some voices that we'd be better off not hearing, uh, and that may be true. But I'm not sure I want one person in the government or one small cabal of people deciding which voices we should hear and which voices we shouldn't. Um, uh, Likewise, you know, if the if the government owns the auditoriums uh, and if you want to hold a rally for something, you're going to have to please the government with with the purpose of your rally uh, in a market where there are many competing auditoriums. You're probably you've got a much better chance of finding a place to hold your rally. Um, and we see this in data. If you if you look at uh, measures of economic freedom and if you look at measures of personal liberty, throughout the world and you compare them across countries and you compare them across times, 
you don't see a lot of, pers uh, of uh, personal liberty in places without a lot of economic freedom. It doesn't necessarily go both ways. There are places with a lot of economic freedom and not a lot of personal liberty, um, but you don't see the opposite. Um, if you don't have the economic freedom, you don't get the personal liberty, and that seems to be pretty much true. Uh, I, I last looked carefully at this data a long time ago, but I'd be surprised if it's changed very much. It's very striking. You just don't find examples of a lot of personal liberty without a lot of economic freedom. Yeah, you, de you definitely can find the economic freedom without the personal liberty. Yes. That's pretty easy to identify a few examples. Um, what would be the examples you would identify in that case? Oh, Singapore has been an example. Um, that's the first one that comes to mind. That's the one uh, that comes to my mind as well. Uh, but yeah, there's definitely, I think uh, Bob Lawson, who works on the Economic Freedom of the World Index, I think he's done some empirical work kind of investigating that hypothesis as well, um, if people are interested in learning more. Um, so I do want to talk about some of the really important, meaningful contributions that Friedman made in terms of actual policy change. So one of the things that I think he, you mentioned he was most proud of was his influence on, on getting rid of uh, the military draft. Can you, can you speak about that a little bit? Absolutely. Well, um, uh, Friedman and I, I will, uh, mentioned in this context my late colleague Walter Oy, another uh, great economist who was very influential in this. Uh, Friedman and Oy and uh, a few others were all involved with this um, commission that Richard Nixon set up, uh, President of the United States, to advise him on uh, uh, policy regarding the draft. Friedman ever the believer in markets, uh, was uh, very much opposed to the draft um, for reasons that I think most economists are going to be very sympathetic to. Uh, you draft people, you don't pay them very much, and, and naive people say, oh, well, that's good because that means we get an army for cheap. It doesn't mean you're getting an army for cheap. The people who you're drafting are now not able to be productive citizens. It's costing you a lot. The person you draft somebody who would have been a carpenter, you're losing a lot of carpentry services. That's a big cost. You draft a person who would have been a brain surgeon, you lose a lot of brain surgery. That's a big cost. Um, and one problem with a draft is it's very hard for you to know who to draft because it's very hard for you to know who has a lot of productive alternatives that they could be engaged in. A uh, big advantage of a volunteer army, and again, this is... Uh, a special case of the big example of markets in general is that the people who volunteer are by and large, uh, all of the things equal, the people who were not about to write a great novel, the people who were not about to be great brain surgeons, the people who were not about to be extremely productive carpenters. Um, so uh, he made that case and he made that case so persuasively. Uh, there was one great moment uh, in front of the United States Congress with testimony um, uh, where General William Westmoreland, who was the head of the United States forces in Vietnam and a proponent of the draft, said, I do not, in, in opposition to the volunteer army, he said, I don't want to command an army of mercenaries. And Friedman turned to him and said, would you rather command an army of slaves? Um, 
it, he was so persuasive that, and again, Walter Oy, I think, was a big um, uh, uh, influence here also, that the commission Nixon appointed, which was pretty much split 50-50 between proponents of the draft and opponents, by the end of their deliberations, I believe was unanimously, returned a, a report where they were unanimously opposed to the draft, and Nixon uh, took that advice seriously, and pretty soon the draft was ended. Uh, so that's that's a huge um, policy victory, and I think you know without the economists and without, in particular, Friedman and Oy, we would not have had that. That's an amazing achievement. Um, I know that uh, in the Economic Freedom of the World Index that the Fraser Institute releases, uh, military conscription is one of the the components, and and a lot of times people find that to be pretty controversial. But the justification is. It is taking away your freedom to decide how to spend your time and to help to allocate your labor. Um, it's absolutely an infringement on freedom. And it's taking away not just your freedom, but other people's prosperity. Because when we take away your freedom, we, we take away your opportunity to serve people in other ways, uh, other ways than serving in the army. Another policy uh, discussion that Friedman got into a, quite a bit was, was occupational licensing. So I know that this is a particular topic of interest uh, to yourself, you had mentioned, and also to me, my students, I think, are sick of hearing me talk about the unseen or, or difficult to notice costs of, of occupational licensing. So I would love to hear uh, your interpretation and, and freedoms or Friedman's perspective on occupational licensing. This was the, this was, uh, the first really um, uh, major work that uh, Friedman did in economics, estimating the costs of occupational licensing. Um, I, I don't know how it is in Canada. I expect it's about the same as it is in the United States. We have, uh, you need to have a license to cut people's nails. You need to have a license to cut people's hair. Um, uh, you need to, I had a student who wanted to uh she she actually developed as a fine art she was uh painting on people's nails elaborate scenes um elaborate reproductions of of the mona lisa and things like that and uh she wanted to sell that service and it, that required a license and that license required her to take courses in how to cut hair uh absolutely nothing to do with anything she wanted to do um so the ubiquity of this across occupation in the United States, there are states where you need a license to be a ticket taker. Uh, and, and of course, what this does is it restricts entry to those occupations and keeps wages up, which is good for some people, but it all keeping wages up means keeping prices up. And um, it also, even for the people who you might think benefit from it, it means that you are trapped in the state where you live. If you want to move to another state, because at least in the United States, um, and again, I don't know in Canada how much of this is federal and how much is provincial, but in the United States, all this licensing is done at the state level. If you move from one state to another, your license is no good anymore. So you end up being trapped. Um, but at the other end of the spectrum from the ticket takers and the cosmetologists, we have the really high level professions like doctors where uh, Friedman was the first to argue and to argue vehemently that there's a lot of stuff that we require you to have a medical license to do that plenty of other people could do perfectly well. Um, and that this is keeping 
it's preventing people from getting a lot of medical care. It's keeping medical prices way up and preventing people from getting a lot of medical care. At the time, that was thought to be crazy. The idea that a non-doctor could give physical exams, the idea that a non-doctor could prescribe medications, the idea that a non-doctor could um, uh, you know, set a broken arm for, for, people thought it was completely crazy. I remember arguing with people long after, I mean, Friedman started saying this stuff in the 1950s. I remember arguing with people in the 1990s who thought it was completely crazy. But in the United States, at least, those ideas have, we've come a long way. Things have gotten a lot better. We have physicians assist, people called physicians assistants. We have people called nurse practitioners. They can give physical exams. They can prescribe medications. They can treat a lot of conditions that not long ago you had to be a doctor in order to treat. Things have gotten much better. Where Our medical care is far better now in the United States because of these physicians assistants and these nurse practitioners. Now they too are licensed, okay? And I think you could argue that things would be even better if we eased up on those licensing requirements, maybe eliminated them altogether and let people complete, compete in markets. I say that to people, they think it sounds crazy. Well, they thought it sounded crazy when Friedman said, uh, uh, maybe we don't need doctors for all this stuff too. I do not know how much of the change we can attribute to Friedman's arguments, but I do know that for a very long time, he was the only one making those arguments. He made them very consistently, very persistently, and things did change. And for a long time, he was the only one who wanted that change. So I think probably we got to, um, uh, we've got him to thank for, for that at some level. And I think it can still go a lot farther, again, at the high-end professions like the lawyers and the doctors, and it can go a lot farther at the low-end profession where, for goodness sake, why are you licensing cosmetologists or ticket takers? Um, it's it's insanity. Yes, I, I believe um, it used to be the case that in the United States, something like 5% of occupations required some sort of professional license, and now it's upwards of, of 20%. Um, so that's just a huge increase in, in the number of occupations that require you to get this additional training. Um, what are some other kind of hidden effects? Uh, I've, I've heard people talk about those types of policies being regressive um, in effect. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, they, as I said, they certainly raise wages. They also make it impossible for a lot of people to get into those occupations. So. Uh, You'll, you'll see some people, and uh, certainly the people who already have the licenses, are going to be very uh, uh, much in favor of having that licensing requirement continued. But you're keeping a lot of people out of those occupations, and you're you're making them poorer. Uh, you're also raising the prices of all those services, which is making everybody poorer. Uh, so, um, uh, and 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 who pays for the cosmetology licensing? It's the people who go to cosmetologists. Who pays for the and uh, uh, who pays for the ticket-taking licensing? It's, it's the people who are using tickets. Uh, the um, uh, so the costs of those, and I'm not sure. You may have more information on this than I do. I'm not sure how those costs end up being spread across the various segments of society. They certainly hurt rich people. They certainly hurt poor people. 
whether they hurt rich people more than poor people or poor people more than rich people, I'm not sure I have any data on. Maybe you do. Um, uh, I think the Mercatus Center has some great, a great series of studies um, with Deanna Thomas and I want to say James Bailey. I think they have done some work that has shown that the prices, uh, or at least the percentage of your income that you're paying for for these uh, regulated goods, um, it's taking up a larger portion of, of lower income individuals' uh, incomes. Uh, Not I'm, to mention, if you're a lower income individual, you are less likely to be able to afford to try to get into that profession in the first place. Right, right. There are some other very interesting policy conversations that came out of uh, Friedman's work. Uh, school choice would be another one that we could talk about. Um, what can, can you discuss a little bit about Friedman's uh, argument in favor of school choice and and the argument in favor of school like. choice is the same argument that we've made uh, over and over again. It's the argument for competition. It's the idea that if you don't like the school that you're that you're in, then you ought to be able to move uh, to a different school, and that you should not have to pay for the school that you're not using, um, and that this creates. Um, not only does it give you choice, but it also creates an incentive for all of the schools to make themselves better. It also creates an opportunity for different schools to cater to different preferences, different needs, different kinds of children. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Friedman and Milton and Rose Friedman were, were great advocates for this, and I think uh, very influential advocates. They weren't always successful. Um, there was... Um, I, I remember uh, there was a referendum in the state of California on instituting a school choice system where Milton and Rose were very active in um, uh, campaigning for, for the passage of that referendum, and it failed. And I, I spoke to him shortly afterward, and he said, he said, this was such a tragedy because we came so close, he said, if we had only been able to raise another million dollars, I think we would have won this. We were only a million dollars short and uh, that we, we would have come so close um, really breaks my heart. And I said to him, how much did you raise? And he said about 350,000. Um, <laughs> and there was a little twinkle in his eye. I, I, I didn't pursue that any further. Um, that wasn't even close at all. No. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, but he must have been such a trip to be around. Just you know, uh, another time. I wasn't always. Uh, I'll I'll tell you this story and I'll let you make of it what you can because I'm not entirely sure what to make of it. Although it was delightful, <laughs> he and I got in an argument once about what is the worst thing about the drug war. And his position was that the worst thing about the drug war was all the people who are in jail, which is a pretty good, you can make a pretty good case for that. I tried to argue that an even bigger cost of the drug war is all the people who would have been happier taking drugs and aren't. Um, and so we, we argued about that for a while. And then we both said, well, we don't have to argue about this. Let's actually make some estimates. And we pulled out a piece of paper and a pencil and we tried to estimate the cost of the people being in jail. And we tried to estimate the cost of the foregone pleasure that people were getting from not taking drugs. And 
after some calculation, the, the two numbers came out to be almost exactly equal. And when they can't, he did what you did. As soon as they, when they came out to be almost exactly equal, he laughed and he laughed, he laughed uproariously. And I, I never completely understood exactly what it was that he found so very funny about that. But I, I, I think it was less a laugh of finding something funny than a laugh of delight that it was possible for two people who disagreed to sit down and look at some numbers and actually come to a conclusion and that and that and that yeah they came out to be about equal but if one of them had been bigger than the other we both knew that one of us would have immediately said okay you were right and i was wrong uh and i i think the laughter was was more just delight in the process uh I wonder what he would think about the state of you know public discourse today. Um, and it seems very difficult to convince people, even with data, that. Uh, yeah, I think he'd be brokenhearted, as am I. Um, yeah, I, d I definitely you know it's it's difficult, and you know being economic educators, um, it makes the job a challenge. Um, I don't want to end on a sad note, so let's talk a bit about, you know, how has Friedman influenced your own work? Oh, I, I think, um, you know, in so many ways, first of all, uh, I never took a course from him, um, but I have learned a lot of economics from people who did learn a lot of economics from him. And I I suspect my whole way of thinking about economics, my 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 instinct that the answers to everything are in the microeconomics, the answers to everything are in thinking about individual behavior, um, about optimization, about equilibrium, um, about openness to initially counterintuitive conclusions, about following logic wherever it leads you, following logic wherever it leads you. And I think at some level, I got that two steps removed from Friedman. I got it from the people who had learned economics from Friedman. The, 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 the insistence on, look, you follow your logic and it leads to something that you never thought could be true. If your instinct is to say, is to discard it, then, you know, why, why have logic in the first place if it's never gonna surprise you? Um, the whole point of logic is to learn things that we otherwise would not have known. So the, the I, I think I can call myself passionate about following logic wherever it leads you, no matter how counterintuitive. And in fact, to be particularly delighted when the result is counterintuitive, because that's when you were wrong about something and now you're right about it. So you've made some intellectual progress. Counterin, counterintuitive conclusions those are the times when you discover you were wrong about something and that's the best kind of day you can possibly have if you now understand how to think about it right um so that i learned delight in those things from him i learned specifics about how to think about microeconomics the the not just the appreciation for logic but the specific kinds of logic again not directly from him but from his writings and from the things I learned from people who had learned from him. Uh, in our personal interactions, which there weren't all that many of them, but there were probably six times when I spent an hour with him. And um, uh, 
I'm not sure that this counts as as influence, but I I treasure the memories of those times. They were such delights. Um, uh, and and I have not learned this lesson as well as as probably he would have wanted me to. But the lesson that you it always pays to treat your opponents with respect and that it always pays to realize that you've thought about stuff that they haven't thought about yet. And if they're saying stuff that's nonsense, well, probably you say stuff that's nonsense about stuff that you haven't thought about that hard all the time. And if I'm arguing with a, with a, a computer programmer who's speaking complete nonsense about economics, which happens a lot, uh, I have to remember that, you know, if this guy saw my computer programs, he'd feel the same way that, as, as I'm feeling right now. Because uh, I write a lot of programs and I'm not much of a programmer. Um, we all have the things we've thought about and the things we haven't much thought about. And you have to respect that and you have to appreciate that other people are groping their way toward truth and um, that it always pays to try and help them along rather than um, rather than give up on them. Uh, and I, I think I got some of that from him. I think I got less of it than he had to give and less of it than he probably would have wanted me to get, but I got some of it and I appreciate that. He was such a role model in terms of how to be a good ambassador for your ideas and just how to put the you know inquiry above everything else. Yeah. Um, one question I love to ask all of the guests on this show is what are, what is maybe one or two of the ideas that Friedman put forth that you think have been most misunderstood? Right? What would you like to set the record straight on? Oh, what an interesting question. Um, you know, what a shame that nothing's coming to mind. I, 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 I feel like I've, I've, you know, I've spent enough time with this circle of ideas that I, I hope I have no major misconceptions left. Maybe I have a few. Um, so I might not be the best situated to tell you what is most confusing or is most likely to confuse other people or what has most likely confused other people. Did you have anything in mind? No, not, not particularly. I mean, cause he was such a good communicator of ideas to a general audience, but I just didn't know if there was anything where, you know, people kind of distill uh, Friedman's, you know, insight into, you know, something that it, it just misrepresents what he was actually talking about. Well, of course, you know, there is the uh, um, the ever-present problem with economics or with public policy in general, that if you want to help, if you have some program that you want to uh, uh, lobby for because you think it will help women or because you think it will help poor people or because you think it will help Albanians, and if I say that program is not going to work, um, your instinct in many cases, I think, as a human being is to say, oh, well, that means you don't want to help women or you don't want to help poor people or you don't want to help Albanians. Um, there is always, you know, here's a guy, you've got you've got a, an idea that you think is going to do a lot of good for the world. And here's a guy telling you 
uh, actually, it's not going to do a lot of good for the world. And I think there is a very human instinct to react to that by saying, oh, well, you're only saying that because you don't want good things. Um, and I think, you know, Friedman was particularly susceptible to that because he liked telling other people what was wrong with their ideas. Um, and probably we all are. We all, uh, all economists are, all people who are interested in policy are subject to that. All people who, uh, all people who are human beings are subject to that. Um, uh, you know, your, your spouse says, let's go to the trees so we'll have a great time. And you list six reasons why you think we won't have a great time and your spouse says, oh, you just never want to have any fun. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's the same thing writ large. Well, in the essential Milton Friedman book, you do end with some recommended resources. And I know throughout our conversation today, you had mentioned or encouraged listeners to check out uh, the videos of, of Friedman on, on YouTube. Are there any other resources, blogs, uh, movies, videos, uh, popular articles that you would recommend? Well, you know, I think if you're if you're interested in Milton Friedman, that's because you're interested in a way of thinking, and um, uh, you don't have to get that specifically from Milton Friedman. You can get it from a lot of people, um, and there are a lot of good blogs out there. Um, uh, uh, and uh, a lot of good books and a lot of good videos. I, um, I'm a, a great fan of uh, Jamie White, the philosopher, who has written a lot of books on how to think straight, not just about economics, but thinking straight in general. Uh, there's a book called Crimes Against Logic, which I think everybody should read. Um, it's a very easy, lighthearted read, and uh, there's a lot in there about how to think about not just policy, but all kinds of things. Not specifically Friedman, but but the same sort of thinking. And I think you know we we you don't want to you don't want to narrow your 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 field too much. If you like that kind of thinking, you should certainly be reading Bastiat for goodness' sake. Um, Absolutely. Uh, uh, another uh, long long dead person, but somebody who never gets old. Uh, David Friedman, um, who happens to be Milton Friedman's son, and learned these ways of thinking probably at home. Uh, David's writing on his blog and in his books, I think, is indispensable. Um, I, I will recommend some of my own books. Um, you mentioned several of them, but you didn't mention the most recent, which is called Can You Outsmart an Economist? So I'll mention that. Um, you, um, uh, there are blogs like Marginal Revolution. Um, there are... I would say my own blog, but I have slowed down. I used to blog every day. Now I blog about once a month. So that's less good of a resource than it used to be. Uh, Robin Hansen's blog called Overcoming Bias is another, uh, I think, really good blog. Um, and, um, you know, as you, as you start reading blogs or as you start reading books, they will refer to other blogs and books. And you know how that goes. You end up mm -hmm. going down a, a sometimes a quite wonderful rabbit hole. So start there. You follow the, the citation trail to something new. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. Did you have any parting words of wisdom to leave us with? No, I think we covered it and you've been great. You've, you've really been great. Thank you so much. We really appreciated learning from you today. Okay, thank you. 
You've been listening to Essential Scholars, a new podcast series that explores the ideas and insights of some of history's most influential thinkers. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe and head over to EssentialScholars.org to learn more. See you next time.